to TBD, a not yet named podcast, uh, where we talk about things that are also TBD. Yeah, I mean, it, it, you could say everything in this podcast is TBD. Yeah, yeah, these are things things that will be determined. We're determining things. This is TBD is actually not a bad name for the podcast itself because we don't really know what we're going to talk about necessarily because it could go anywhere and we're, we're, we are going to try to determine not only what, what we're going to talk about but what we're trying to say about what we're talking about holy moly <laughs> that's not bad i mean i know you wanted to call it knowledge blunderbuss but this is a i think tbd might be a slicker name yeah i do like weapons that are archaic um and, you know, sound just like someone just made up a term on the spot. Like someone was in the middle of a battle and was like, I need something now. Get me my, I don't know, give me a, like, give me a, a blunderbuss. Like, what? Ah, you know, the thing, like someone like missed the lesson where they gave, where they gave all the names to things. And so he just was out there demanding a tool of violence and asked for a blunderbuss. Well, I think in some ways this podcast will become a tool of violence in terms of, uh, knowledge violence or us at least inflicting knowledge violence on others um <laughs> oh man that's that, that, that this sounds good actually yeah like yeah especially if knowledge that, violence was also another uh, proposed name for this podcast but. yeah because that that one's that one's nice because it can't be misinterpreted like no one <laughs> can download that and and be disappointed in what they find there yeah, that's it. Because they'll either no, see it as like a tool they could use for violence or that we're just doing violence on them, as in like they're, they were assaulting them with just the inanity of what we present as our wisdom. Like, that's it. That's exactly right. I think, uh, as always, Aaron, you've hit the nail on the head because I uh, I think anyone listening to this will feel like they've experienced violence or at least as an assault of some kind. Uh, but we are talking about knowledge. That is true. That is accurate. Um, and I suppose in some ways this TBD is what we'll call a podcast at the moment is trying to focus on knowledge in one way or another, or at least using it as a jumping off point for what we want to talk about. So, uh, Aaron, who are you? I'm Aaron. And, uh, as you rightly put it, I like to hit nails on the head. Um, you know, it's one of my second favorite place to hit them. And, um, I'm a teacher, I'm Canadian and I'm overseas. I'm, I'm, I'm a man of the world. Um, that's not entirely true. I've lived in like four or five different countries. <laughs> well, they're, they're, yeah, that's, that's all of them lovely. were in this world. Yeah. What, what about you, John? Yeah. Who, who is John? Well, I am not a teacher, but I was a teacher. Uh, I am a man and I am also of this world. So I suppose in some ways we're very similar, uh, except for the teaching part. But uh, yeah, I'm a former teacher. I used to teach with Aaron, me and him. Uh, we used to teach together in the exotic Middle East. Uh, which is just as exotic as it as it sounds, and I am currently a carpenter, so I, I'm sort of trying to uh, live a live a very different life at the moment than what I did, and probably even better at me than hit at hitting nails on the head. <laughs> yeah. you set me up for that and i, I just up. didn't even well you set yourself up for that because <laughs> when you complimented me it's something that clearly you're much better at than i am <laughs> yeah that's 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 it i literally hit nails on the head for a living um and we you know we also both are trying to hit nails on the head metaphorically in this podcast why does it exist it's a good question it exists primarily because we think 
that we enjoy talking to each other uh, and we often in our working working years in the past would fall into very philosophical discussions and uh, we're, yeah, two of those people who just think that what they say is so important that it must be uh, recorded for posterity and then handed to the masses. Yeah, I mean, it's like, it's kind of like how some people maybe use their diary and then uh, posthumously publish their diaries. But uh, my diary, my brain only can function in dialogue with another person. Uh, <laughs> so you are my, my co-diary. That's not a good word. But, That's it. But you get what I'm saying. No, no, we're, we're, we're co-diarists, yeah. And we're trying to, instead of posthumously, we're trying to posthumously, I guess, uh, oh. produce our diaries so before we die hopefully this podcast will come out so the, oh well then okay well never mind we won't, we won't have all the swearing that's going through next then Keep it clean for the, <laughs> for the kids <laughs> no so that that's it that's essentially it isn't it that uh, we're going to talk to each other because we like doing that and we're going to record it because we think other people might get something out of it uh, and what else might they get out of it? Well, we're going to try and focus what we talk about uh, a little bit in the same way that you might point a camera at the moon and try and focus. Uh, it's about that effective and about effective as that analogy, really. But essentially, we're going to try and focus on uh, something we used to teach together. What was that, Aaron? <gasps> that was a course called Theory of Knowledge in the IB program, a course that looks at you know, the way that we come to know the things that we know, or at least the things that we believe that we know, what makes knowledge um, credible, what makes it um, attainable, what makes it complicated, multifaceted, all of that kind of cool stuff. Uh, and this would often lead John and I down these kind of really cool rabbit holes uh, of conversation. We would, uh, even when we weren't teaching it together, but we were both teaching it, or even before we were both teaching it, um, we would just start talking about uh, the course. Um, and some of the big ideas that get presented there. And, just, and again, we just sort of become this jumping off point into fun conversations about our lives and, and different philosophical things that we had learned or different examples we could think of from our own real life. So it seemed like a, a, a kind of a logical place to provide some kind of focus for what otherwise is just us probably seeming like we all we do is pat ourselves on the back. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. Nail meat head. God, Aaron, that was that was excellent. Yeah, exactly. That's it. And I think just to echo what you said, a logical jumping off point because it's like you need a bit of structure. This is obviously going to be pretty rough around the edges and, you know, we would never be arrogant enough to assume that there'd be really much audience for what we're doing because um, I would say um, having not taught theory of knowledge for a long time uh, and, and currently not even employed as a teacher, my, my uh, selling it, authority. Keep selling it. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. My, my level of authority is pretty low, uh, but we like talking to each other and we like talking about those things. And yes, a logical jumping off point. So to further logicalize these jumping off points, um, we decided that we would use the essay questions as a way to, to further focus it. So we were going to, for each episode, whatever you want to call it, uh, we pick a question and use that as our as our sort of theme or our topic. Maybe we should talk a little bit like what that what that essay is, not like in a big way, because yeah. I mean, we're, 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 this isn't really aimed for 
students in particular, but we're talking about these essays. So this is a course from the International Baccalaureate Program. It's for students in grade 11 and grade 12. It's sort of a, a year-long course that's spread across those two years. So it's not as rigorous as or as many teaching hours as like an English or a maths class or something like that. But, um, but it is an important component of getting that diploma. And it has currently has two major assessments. Uh, one assessment is a presentation, which we won't be going into in as much detail. That's actually being phased out of the, of the new curriculum. But then there's always continues to be this essay where students are given six different essay questions. Uh, and they choose not really questions so much as they're often uh, just provocative statements. Um, and they're asked to sort of use their knowledge of the course to discuss the different perspectives that might surround those statements. So these statements or essay prompts will be kind of how we guide ourselves. And there's, there's 12 of these a year because there's a, an exam for um, the Western Hemisphere, the Northern Hemisphere. I don't really know how it divided most of the world. <laughs> that goes to school starting in like August or September. It ends in May, June. Yeah. There's uh, one for those on Mars. There's ones for those on Venus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then there's people like who talk funny like John who go to school starting in <laughs> February. Is that what you guys go to school? That's right. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Okay. Yeah, it's crazy. It's yeah. Craziness. It's a wild world. Unless, of course, you're listening to this in that part of the world, in which case, you know, I'm all backwards and crazy. But so there's two sets of exams. There's a May exam and there's a November exam. So that gives us 12 different questions or some fodder to work with. Um, yeah, that's right. Just as, again, jumping off points. Yeah, it's, I think it's, it's totally fair that we give you a little bit of that background uh, because already it's quite an esoteric thing we're asking um people to to join as a concept that we're taking questions from a very narrow uh well i guess narrow is perhaps not the right word but a, a not widespread curriculum by ib um, it's well known but it's it's certainly not widespread and it's very it's one specific subject from that and we're taking one specific question from one specific assessment however you don't need to have any knowledge of that to uh, understand what we're talking about no it's true you could go back john and, and edit that explanation out entirely <laughs> no, that's definitely not what i'm saying at all no, but, I mean, so you could, but you could you could in theory and if you do i won't be mad at you uh especially if you leave this part in where people are just like edited what out and you're like exactly maybe a good way of setting it up would be saying that it, it's like um there's these games, these card games that are out now, or even just in magazines, uh, you know, Chuck Klosterman sort of like questions for conversation. Uh, and these are just like headier, more philosophical questions for conversation. So if you had, if you were a family of nerds and you lived atop an ivory tower, uh, <laughs> you're sitting around having dinner together and you ran out of things to talk about and your own unique fields of study, you would maybe reach into this deck of cards and pull out this card that has this strange prompt on it for your family to try to bond around and have a conversation. That's right. That's a, that's really good. That's a great analogy because yeah, this is, this is what it is. It's a prompt for, for conversation. It is philosophical in nature to some extent, but a, phil a philosopher would do no better at this conversation than any critical thinker from any walk of life. That's a great line. That's oh. exactly right. So yeah. This is why I like really hosting with you is I, when, no matter what I say, you know, you're, you're, it's a real pat on the back. This is why I, I get conversations. Not an audience, not a chance to speak and record things for posterity, but just a good old-fashioned pat on the back. Well, that's it, because we don't need to find our voice. We're privileged enough to be uh, in the, you know, white males, et cetera, et cetera. So we're, we're heard all the time. <laughs>
Um, so this is not about finding a voice, that's for sure. No, it's just about finding <laughs> the, uh, the pat on the back, the adoration that yeah. my voice demands. Because I'm not only am I uh, incredibly <laughs> privileged, I'm also incredibly fragile. Um, yes, exactly. Yeah. yeah, we're both very fragile. <laughs> All right. Well, enough beating around the proverbial bush. Um, let's have a let's let's have the question. Let's let's get right into it. So this is the question um, we've picked. It's the first one on the list that I had. Uh, so it says, accepting knowledge claims always involves an element of trust. Um, and it says discuss this claim with reference to areas of knowledge. But really what we're interested in there is the first part, which is accepting knowledge claims always involves an element of trust. So uh, if we think about that, the first thing we want to do is probably think about, all right, what, what do we, like knowledge claims is a sort of, it's a term from TOK. Um, but really when we're talking about a knowledge claim, it's basically any assertion of something being, true i suppose or being knowledge would you agree with that aaron yeah yeah so you could really almost take out the word claims altogether and just say that, you know yeah accepting knowledge always involves an element of trust which is interesting it's saying like do we need to trust sources of knowledge or do we need to trust that's i guess that's part of the complicated part is unpacking these questions or these problems yeah and like where does the trust lie where does it need to lie does it need to lie anywhere yeah i think um I guess, yeah, there's a, an element of trust. What does that suggest? If it's an element of trust, I guess we're saying that it's it's that, that will always be threaded in knowledge, whether that's new or not. So if I tell you that, you know, I bought a new car and, and here is that car, as a small example, I'm offering new knowledge. So in that case, the car is new knowledge. Me telling you, Aaron, that I have this car is is that new knowledge. So in that specific, very small example, where where would there be an element of trust? Well, yeah, I mean, I got to trust that that you are telling me the truth that you got a new car. So it's like that's claim number one, you know. And then I'm also when you show if you're showing me, you're saying here's the car. Then I have to trust that not only did you get a new car, but that that is in fact your new car. Uh, I guess it could look really weird. It could be a really weird looking car. It could look like uh, I don't know enough about cars. This is a tough example for me, but it could be like a cardboard box with uh, two <laughs> wheels on it and a bunch of springs and like pool noodles hanging off of it. And then I would have to like trust that this was in fact a car. With what little knowledge of cars that you do have, you, you, you're you not sure that that's actually a car that's uh, going to be operational. You're pretty sure cars aren't cars. Are car yeah. Or like vice versa. You could come, not, the vice versa is not the right word to use, but you can also, um, I could also be wondering if you came up with a really nice car. You know, this, uh, some uh, real, real fancy thing like a <laughs> yeah. Ford or uh, uh, one of those, yeah, one of those real fancy ones. And, and, and then I'm wondering, you say, I got this new car. Okay, well, then again, I, I'm assuming that you, you got this car and that this is, in fact, the car. But then I might also be wondering, like, what is got? I got a new car. I, I, I trust that means mm -hmm. that you purchased yeah, the car. Yeah, but did you yeah. maybe steal the car okay. or did you rent the car? So what uh, – what you know so let's let's so we're starting to sort of explore that a bit then so it's like we've i've i've presented this car to you and yeah it's this flash new car so if there's you know what what would make you doubt that it was that it wasn't a true assertion like that that you know what would make you doubt that oof well, there's so many things i guess going on here like one is 
I mean, just to go back to my example of like, what does it mean to like get a car um, or what a car is? There's already like, there needs to be trust that our, our words sort of mean the same thing. That what you think of when you think of a car is like what I think of when I think of a car. And, when, and that the get part that I would use to suggest maybe buying at certain times in my life, at least would be like where you're at. But again, if you were much, if you were much younger, maybe than me, um, or I didn't think, or you were like a visitor and, and like you came to visit me in Canada and you got this car then I would, I would automatically interpret what that meant differently. Yes, I think, yes. Oh, you that, so that context car. shifts where like our interpretation of it. Right. Like, so it's, yeah. So I guess it's coming down to, um, that trust can have contexts, right? So to build on that then. And we have to really be aware of that context then because like you, we all have context to things that we say, but the, but the listener who's taking in the knowledge needs to be aware of that context so that they can try to infer what is meant by car, um, what is meant by get based on these other, like based on knowing what the yeah. context of that claim is. If it was like, it was a, a garage and like a, an action movie and someone just ripped in real fast this real flash car we might yes. infer that this person stole the car and got this new yeah car. yeah yeah absolutely like so yeah. it's uh the how that how that knowledge is presented to us is a big part of it is it worth at this point just kind of going all right what is what does trust even mean then so we've kind of gone all right we've just looked very briefly there at just like a knowledge piece of knowledge like a hypothetical and just to kind of unpack it briefly, but if we're looking at trust now, because it's probably pretty important, what is it? What is what is trust? What is that word loaded with? Well, see, I don't know. Um, I, I I just live with cats, uh, and I refuse to. I'm always on guard and I'm on edge, and incredibly anxious. <laughs> so trust isn't really my forte. But you, you, I do. You have human in your human. lives. Um, so I don't know. Why do you want to take yeah, the first okay. swing at that one? What, what is so I suppose to, trust. To if you're trusting them. someone, uh, I suppose my first reaction to that, like a gut reaction, is that it's it is it is tied up with truth. So uh, that I believe that what you will do, what you will say, uh, the things you claim, the the actions you propose to undertake that I believe that you'll do those things. So I suppose that for me, that's where trust lies. So how does that manifest itself? Well, I suppose for me, like I trust uh, my fiance, I trust my family that, you know, when they tell me things that I don't have to um, uh, think that I'm being deceived because I trust them. So I suppose that's how I would immediately gut react to trust is that it's wrapped up with, uh, how I anticipate people will act and how, okay. This, this is interesting. Oh, no, no. I didn't mean to cut you off. <laughs> Tell me why it's interesting. Tell me why it's interesting, John. No, no, no. I mean, please. yeah, so yeah, no, please cut me off. Please cut me off. I, well, I stepped all over because you, you mentioned two very important groups of people or people in your life, your family and your fiance. Um, one was a stranger to you for like a long period of time. I assume you're, no, you, you didn't you didn't come together as children yeah. and were raised with the idea I'm of not, like, your really one. Yeah, now. Um, totally. <laughs> I 
I meant more like family friends oh, yeah, and yeah, like yeah, a close yeah, neighbor. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, it's also good that, right. that, they're, that they're not one and the same. The family and the fiance are not the same person. That's, that's also important. But, but yeah, so but I guess what I'm getting at is that I'm wondering to what extent does trust have to be earned? Like, or, or are we like innately to be trust until we're yeah, deceived? Okay. Yep, yep. I see where you're coming from. So in the two brief examples I gave, I, you know, I'm saying my fiance and my family are, are people I trust or that help me define what trust means, I suppose. So one is that if we break down those two, one is, yeah, your family that you, that these are people that you, you sort of born into, or there's a, there's a, you're, you're assigned them right at birth. Whereas my fiance is someone that, yes, you're right. You get to know that person from a stranger to, you know, uh, to a partner. So that, that trust was gained along the way. Yeah. And then I guess like, but did you, but you must've trusted her when you met her to get to know her. So it's it's sort of, so that's why I guess I I tripped up a little bit is like our our family, maybe we're we're so young that we trust them until maybe we learn otherwise potentially, but do we have the same relationship with other people? And if not, then what makes us trust you might meet somebody, you might have met your fiance and, and automatically trusted her from the get-go, whereas you might meet somebody else and not trust them. And, and what is that based on? Is that based on like weird uh, subconscious biases of what they look like or what they, how, they, how they're kind of carrying themselves when you meet them? Is it based on question. context, like where you meet them? Yeah, because I suppose it's like, okay, so if I'm walking down yeah, the street, just in the local town that I live in, I suppose I would say that on the whole, I, I would I would naturally trust people. I, I would say that I am. That's someone who would naturally trust people. Um, that my first instinct is to go, okay, yeah, I'll give you a fair go. Like um, I, I try to at least, you know, I'm trying, I can't think of any instances in which I would distrust someone immediately um, because I think that for a society to function that you you I guess I would claim that you have to automatically give some trust to what people claim. That's like, that's your bedrock. That's what I would say. Would you agree with that? I think so. Yeah. I mean, I was trying to think about, can I, can I take on the character here? Who's like, that's not me at all. I, I, uh, I just trust everybody, but it is kind of tricky. Is that like, um, I'm just trying to remember the name. Is it like, is it Emmanuel oh, Kant? Is it the deontology? Oh that, that someone's, like, someone's educated. Is it? I'm just trying to, no, no, no. Yeah, I'm, I'm actually no, literally no, no. asking. Like, that's where, like, you know, we need, we need everyone like, to accept it. Yeah, I mean, like, it, we should judge our ethical actions based on what if everyone did it. So if if no one, if everyone lied all the time and everyone distrusted everybody yes. all the time, the society would, like, break down. So therefore, it's, like, ethically in our best interest uh, to be yes. honest okay. with each other, at least most of yeah, the Yeah, I think so. I think that's right. You know, whoever we accredit that to, that's that's what it comes down to, I suppose, because that's, I guess, real utilitarian sort of way to look at it right like that. And again, we're not philosophers. We just pretend we are. And um, we're going to get a lot of names wrong. I'm going to attribute some things that to, to Mother Teresa that, uh, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah, equally. Probably mix the two. Those are probably just the only two names I'm going to attribute to. Even when I know otherwise, it's still yeah, that's exactly, Michael that's Jackson. Exactly right. Yeah, and it's, you know, that's something that you've always done and we love you for it, you know. Yeah, that's it. You know, there's, there's bigger fish to fry than uh, 
pulling apart your uh, the people you attribute things to, which happen to be Michael Jackson and Mother Teresa every time. But you know that's your battle. <laughs> that's, yeah, that's my own hurdle to overcome in this way. Yeah, that's your absurd hurdle. Right. Um, yeah, well, I think yeah, I think that's right. Like there's a utilitarian thing going on there. So if you go back to the question real brief, it says accepting knowledge always involves an element of trust. So that always part, I think there's sort of the way I read it, just to link to what we're talking about, is like the always part is kind of there's a sort of underlying thing there saying that you know in a society, which is obviously what we all live in, when you when you are encountering new knowledge there has to be an element of trust because if you distrusted everything that came your way, then you'd, you'd, it would be, you'd be non-functional. But is there a difference between distrusting everything straight away and being prone to distrust? Well, yeah, I think so. Cause you don't, you also don't want to be, you can imagine a world gone awry where people just trusted everybody entirely. Uh, right. Like there'd be, be so much yeah. potential for manipulation and, naivety run amok and like no critical thinking so yeah and that, that's a really interesting way to come at it too and i was also wondering like is there is there a way for someone that like, surely there must be a way for someone who is mistrusted to provide knowledge and to earn trust so instead of like knowledge coming because we trust somebody can can trust not come because you know something something we, we didn't trust them at all, but then something came to be found out as true. Do you know what I mean? Like, oh, the world is round. No, it's not. I don't trust you at all. Who are you to talk about this whole world, you small human uh, who's never <laughs> been around it? Um, yeah. Here's my question. How many times have you circumnavigated this round earth of yours? None. <laughs> Case closed. Yeah, exactly. Right? So we do we mistrust them, but then additional things come up down the road that help yeah. us in hindsight yeah, that's- trust that person. And that, that's a long-term one that maybe you don't trust that person until like you know, they're long dead. So it's never actually an element of trust, but surely there must be smaller So examples. what you're talking about there is like, okay, because what we had just established was that, all right, we need to all trust, um, you know, broadly speaking, this is what we said. We all need to trust because if we didn't all trust them, you know, new knowledge came our way, then, you know, society would break down. There has to be some trust. But then we said, all right, there has to be some distrust because otherwise we wouldn't be critical thinkers. But then if you're a deviant from that accepted knowledge, broadly accepted and and trusted, quote unquote, to varying degrees by everyone, but then in deviating and in this example, you know, whether the world is flat or round, so deviating and saying that it's round and then eventually being proved that you were right, where does that trust come from? And that's, that's a really good question because both answers would rely on uh, institutions, um, evolution of scientific knowledge, uh, would rely on maybe certain freedoms being allowed or disallowed. So, because uh, what's the guy, the flat earth, round earth guy? Who's that? Uh, my uncle? <laughs> well, I don't know. Like, what do you mean? <laughs> as in the original, <laughs> the OG of... Oh, God. I know, this is going yeah. to so uh, stupid. So who who was it that came up with? Galileo sounds Galileo? Is he a, I don't know. He was like a, uh, he was an astronomer. No. Copernicus. Uh, oh my gosh. <laughs> See, this it's is, my, this is a great, 
Yeah, edit all of this out. We need to sound <laughs> right, much better. Right. So the round earth guy, I'm going to Google it now and I'm going to edit this out later. We just Googled who was the round earth guy, which is, you know, what everyone Googles because you can never remember that it's Galileo. Uh, so that's normal. It's a normal thing. But here's an issue. I've recently semi got into distilling. Uh, so like distilling my own alcohol. Uh, and yeah, I bought a still. Uh, like really? A, Pretty, like a cheap one. And when I say got oh, into yeah. it, I've only very recently done this. But Before we get too far here, what do you mash <laughs> over question. there? What kind of grains? Uh, so you, the uh... one mash, quote unquote, that I've done has just been sugar, sugar and water, and then you put yeast in it. So it's like a real basic, like uh, that's what this little still is designed for. But yes, I am aware that you can do a whole bunch of other crazy stuff. Um, this is like rum then, it sounds yeah. like. Yeah, I suppose that's... But the, uh, like it, yeah, you you you're essentially creating raw, just alcohol, pure alcohol. So it comes out as uh, again, this shows my just complete ignorance of what I'm doing um, in a Homer Simpson like style of home, home distilling. <laughs> I'm yet to have a nemesis, the beer baron, though, which would I'd be great if I had a beer baron nemesis. All right, I'm beer baron in this scenario anyway. So, uh, <laughs> so. It's hard to going blind, but go on. Tell us more about Good. it. I'm glad you said that. So you said going blind. Why'd you say that? Oh, no. Well, that's just like it's like a folkloric sort of thing that happens when you drink like moonshine, mm-hmm. like high percentage alcohol. Yes. Or not distilled properly, I guess. And I don't, I, I'm saying folkloric only because you got so excited about it. <laughs> you could uh, already say, already. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I realized I, I stumbled into yeah. some kind of QI style general. <laughs> Me and Aaron, is, we're such old campaigners that we, we, we can already read like what, yeah, you know, we can read the subtext of, of what we said. But yeah, so yeah, you're right. There was subtext to me jumping at you bringing up the going blind because there's this pervasive um, idea that when you when you distill uh, home distilling that you have to take out what are called the tops and the tails, um, which are the because when you distill, basically you boil up your mixture and then it produces alcohol. And the thing that comes out is liquid, uh, liquid. But the first part and the last part of that liquid that's coming out is called the top and the tails and you need to take those out for the reason that that will kill you and that's the this is what the 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 story is around distilling and so it discourages a lot of people from distilling is because they think oh you know uh, how do i know how much to take out i'm not a chemist uh you know i don't know what i'm doing here in in that sense uh the tops and the tails are essentially indistinguishable from the gooey middle that you want uh for the layman so how do you know you've you've taken that out Therefore, the risk is too great. I can't trust myself to distill uh, the, the the safe amount of alcohol um, that I would consume otherwise from bottles that I'd buy at the supermarket or from wherever you buy them from wherever you're from um, because there I can trust it because it's been produced for public consumption. But I'm doing it privately and so the risk is too high. I, I can't trust myself. But it turns out that that's actually a myth that uh, – Obviously, any excess consumption of alcohol that you distill at home is going to be bad for you, just in the same way as excess consumption of alcohol from the liquor store will hurt you. But the tops and the tails aren't actually going to kill you any more than the middle. Uh, and gasp. Yeah, gasp. Exactly right. <laughs> so supposedly, and again, look, you can look this stuff up. Um, 
it's really that the tops and the tails just taste bad and they're not that great for you uh, from a just taste point of view. It just doesn't taste as good as the middle. In addition, uh, this myth came from the bootleg days of prohibition in the US and that they, the government wanted this myth to be out there that, you know, if you distilled your own alcohol, you, you'll, you'll kill yourself because you don't know what you're doing. And they poisoned a heap of alcohol. This is an actual thing. They got all these chemists to poison all this alcohol and that would help provide credence to the myth. That, and so people did actually die from this alcohol that they consumed and then that was accredited to, oh, well, this was home distilled, you know, this was bootleg booze and this is what it does to you. And so that myth has stayed around uh, ever since. So if we're organized enough, if we do show notes for this, I'll, I'll put that information in. <laughs> but I need to because this is all brand new to me. And, I, and I'm like, I can't tell you. Sometimes you go, you're so wise and so strategic. Oh, here I we go. <laughs> I can, well, hang on. I'm just trying to say something nice before I totally distrust you. Oh, excellent. I can't, I can't tell whether you're doing this because it's, it's a true lesser known <laughs> fact. That's, yet, that's certainly how you presented it to us, right? Like we're not supposed to know that it's very informative. Or is it one of those things where I, I'm like, whoa, that is so cool. And you're like, and then why do you believe that? And I go, well, it's because I trust you, John. Like I trusted you're, you're, you're a capable researcher. And you're like, ha, all yes. of that's fake. It's all bullshit. Now I need the show notes now. <laughs> you're furiously Googling. Yeah. I'm like, do I, do I trust John or do I trust the American government who's never done anything on becoming? Yeah, that's right. They're a very trustworthy organization. That's exactly right. Yeah. No, it's, it's, yeah. I mean, it's true. It's as true as I think that it is true. And, uh, but I'm, I'm happy to be disproved. I really am. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm happy for, uh, for the myth to, to, to be a myth or not be a myth. Um, but, yeah, I, I I thought it was a great example of that. And I wish that I'd had that meta idea of, of doing that. That actually reminds me of another uh, anecdote about trust, if you'll entertain me. Consider yourself entertained. All Wait, right. I'm entertained. So you're going to, you entertain me. You're entertaining. <laughs> All right. Here we go. Tell me the story. Let me entertain you if I may quote the late, great Robbie Williams, who's actually still alive. But um. So <laughs> I did go to university, funnily enough. And uh, when I was at university, I did a, a course on, uh, what was it called? The course description was like a 200-level course. It was something like the great novels or something like that. And anyway, those details aren't that important. But the course itself was basically built around eight great novels. And a lot of the, you know, it was pretty much, you know, you had a Charles Dickens in there. You had The Turn of the Screw. You had uh, a heap of Jane Austen. Etc. That that kind of thing. And anyway, one of the books was Emma by Jane Austen, and the the lecturer who you know was running the course. It was his course, and he did all the lectures, and he was a tutor as well. Uh, when he delivered the lecture on Emma, which he it seemed to be you know it's a pretty obviously structured course, one book after another, following after another, and then just examining them as novels, and then like the history of the novel, blah blah blah. When he got to Emma. Uh, whereas he'd previously been very effusive about the books and very like, these are, you know, these are so great. And so, you know, obviously so positive as you'd imagine that someone who studied it for a living and then presented that information to, to university students would do. Uh, but when he got to Emma, he really ripped into it. He just pulled it to bits. In a, and I guess what I mean by that is that he was very critical of it. Uh, so he he talked about how it was, I don't know, a subpar compared to the rest of Jane Austen's work and he considered it to be 
It's not a seminal classic. It shouldn't be studied. And we're there just drinking it up because why would we question what he had to say? You know, he told us everything about these other books before and we're, we're obliged to write on his books and not parrot back what he says to him, but pretty much do that. It's, in many ways, that's what it is, right? So we're all just soaking it up, soaking it up. And the lecture goes for, say, 50 minutes and he's, he's really ripping into this book. And, you know, it's amateurish and et cetera, et cetera. And then right at the very end, his last slide, he, he has a sudden about face. And, and um, I'm sure he really enjoys doing this. And he said, what I've said to you is all totally untrue. Uh, I don't believe any of the stuff I've just presented to you. And it may come as a surprise, but uh, I've done this on purpose. And I've found that, and this is all true from me, this is a real thing that happened. Um, I've found that university students simply don't question what they're presented with. Uh, they just, wow. it was pretty cool. I'm not going to lie. You know, this was 2000 and when did I go to university? Whenever that was. So 2006 or something. And, you know, I was fresh out of high school and it was my second year of university, admittedly. But yeah, so he's still pretty young and pretty impressionable. And it really left a big impression on me because he, yeah, he said, you know, that, that uh, you know, you shouldn't just drink it all down, what I say. And in fact, I don't believe any of this. And next uh, lecture, whether it was that week or the week after, uh, I'll give you the real lecture on Emma. And so we were like, whoa, mind blown. Oh, my God. I think that's just a really interesting uh, example of how he manipulating his institutional trust to, you know, our trust within the institution, within him, personal trust as well, I guess. Um, I don't know if these are all technical terms or whatever. He manipulated that for a larger message about trust and, and that we should question and not just drink it all down. And it really always stuck with me that. that. And so, yes, I wish I was a, as original as he was and, and had just done that to you, but I, I, I didn't. But then surely, you know, as the, as the, the cynic... Uh out there and me wonders like if that next lecture he came in to talk about emma and he was ready to like okay here comes the truth this time and then everyone raised their hand constantly and was like yeah but like like why do you, what makes you say that like i don't know if i believe you convince me more and, and everyone was questioning him all the time and then and he had kind of like he kind of boy cried wolf himself i don't know if that, that, that's the technical term for it you know um so he he's almost like by by pulling back the curtain to reveal a human in there that should be challenged, which is, seems to be his goal. Has he, does he, I don't know, like is the mystique somewhat needed or else no one trusts you ever? He sort of lies for the sake of lying or how do you get enough trust? Like this wasn't his first, how would it have been different if it was his very first lecture? And he lectured you the very first day and then realized, and at the very end of the first class, he's like, and I lied to all of you guys. <laughs> how is that different? If you, you know, he's built up a certain amount of, ethos or credibility by lecturing you for five or six of the novels and then kind of spinning it you're right yeah so there's a couple of things going on there like what you're saying it's like one is that he's raised the stakes on his own credibility right like he's raised the i guess he's raised its interrogative stakes on his own credibility that he's he's now up for much more interrogation than he would otherwise because as you said he you know the mystique right if you maintain enough mystique then you can rebuff or at least resist or discourage your claims being questioned, right? So I think you're right there. It's a risky thing to do because now you are up for grabs. You've you've put your head above the parapet, so to speak. And so, yeah, your credibility is really up for grabs at that point. 
And then the second thing there, you're right. It's, it's very strategic, isn't it? Because it's when in the course do I place this? If it's your first hit out from the start, well, then you haven't, as you say, built up your ethos or your, your credibility to a point where you can maybe say that. Yeah, you're right. It's really interesting. Yeah, and it's interesting that like he's still he's an educator, right? In this, so he has to continue to educate with that. Whereas if he just sort of if he came on the first day and was like, "Hey, my name's Steve," and you're like, "Oh, hey, Steve, <laughs> my name's not actually Steve though. You guys are idiots. My name's Aaron." Then then it's sort of like, oh, like he did it more for was it a gag? Was it just to make us look stupid? And so the purpose behind it is what uh, maybe also creates more distrust than what he did was which was more to maybe make himself like you said head above the parapet like um make himself vulnerable and like lower the like the mystique or the power that he has in that situation to make himself vulnerable um yeah. which would be in many ways actually increases his credibility in other ways that makes me wonder about a question john if i can ask you a question yeah, do. which is like we're talking about all these different ways that we come to trust people um whether it's like where they work or where they present themselves or, you know, the, the, the ways in which what they say ties into context and truths that you already know and agree with. But I'm wondering like what sort of things, just to look at from the other side of the coin, what sort of things like do you think make us distrust people yeah. or distrust sources of knowledge right away? Mm. Like, do you mean like, I know you said that you're an, a genuinely a trusting person. Yeah. Um, from the get-go but surely there must be scenarios in which you encounter some, some knowledge whether it's in the form of a person or a website or something where you, automatically you're like probably not going to be true yeah i think you're right like i think so i guess you you're approaching those situations from a like you have a set of which we've sort of established is like what does trust look like you know what like and i'm going in looking to trust you and you're sort of on a, a scale or like there's like a graph show my hand here but uh, on the x- are you drawing it in the air right now <laughs> i am actually yeah i am but on an in, the, in the production notes I'm, I'm gonna try to follow along with you so there's a, there's an axis we're doing like a little yeah, l that's it it's a theater of the mind so if you can imagine a a a, a standard sort of line graph but it's it's evolving as we go along and if it moves up then i'm increasing my trust and then if it's going down, then it's, you know, a decrease in trust. So, you know, and so when I'm, that new knowledge is coming to me, you're right. You're sort of automatically feeding information into this, a, a data set for this, this hypothetical imagined graph. And so when someone's giving you that information, you're either increasing that trust or you're decreasing that trust. But you have a, yeah, I would say there's still a base level so that it's still starting at a point. So what does it, what does decrease that trust? Well, it's going to depend on the context, but I would say that one is how does it fit in with what I already know? And I think that's probably maybe not the most important. I don't think I can claim that, but I think that I'm putting the piece of the puzzle that you give me just to mix up heaps of metaphors into my existing world. You're trying to put that in there and see how it fits. And if it grates up against that, if it's, uh, going against, I believe the world's flat, and you're saying the world's round. Straight away, I'm I'm moving it down. I'm moving the distrust down. So, for example, if someone uh, makes a claim to me about, say, climate change, and this is very broadly speaking, but say climate change is not true, I believe that climate change is true. So 
I must admit, and I'm happy to admit that, that I would automatically probably distrust you, that there's something there, not entirely, because I also believe everything's up for grabs in terms of chatting about things and moving through ideas, but I would automatically start to move you down in the graph. That's fair. And I'm, I'm glad for a sec there, I thought you were going to say that you, like, you were going to start becoming a climate denier uh, <laughs> on the record of this podcast. So yeah. I was a little nervous, but I understand what you're meant now. So, okay, so that's, that's one is like how that knowledge fits in with our existing knowledge. And obviously, you know, it's cool that you said that, you know, you're still open to having conversation because we talked about flat earth is like a great example of that sort of big paradigm shift, right? Where something that no one believed was true or very few people thought was true then becomes like the accepted truth. Yeah, that's right. Um, so what about for you? The same, same idea. Well, I, you know, it's one of those things where I feel kind of like a bad person sometimes, but when I, well, depending on the example I give. So part of it is like, I mean, I can, I can, I can hide it as vaguely as I want. So I could say it's, it's about how the knowledge is presented, but I, and that's, you know, that's too vague to really say anything. Mm. But I think what I actually mean is, sadly, I think sometimes appearance factors into it. And so that could be anything. That could be from like a website. You just kind of go on a website and you're like, we almost teach students to do this, right? Like this isn't, it's just a .com. It's not a .org or a .edu. And uh, it just looks like, you know, it's like someone's 1990s geosites website. <laughs> wow. You just dated just yeah. <laughs> It's a deep cut. It's a deep cut. It's not so much bad. It's one of those Easter eggs. Shout out to the uh, GeoCities uh, webmasters out there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're all listening, <laughs> both of them. Because uh, bo both our parents promised they'd listen to this <laughs> podcast. Um, <laughs> and, you know, but, but part of it's, you know, we all stumbled across like a really poor looking, like just not aesthetically pleasing website. Yes. Uh, and, and unfortunately, I think that that often breeds a certain level of distrust. Yeah. Um, and, and, and I think, you know, sometimes, unfortunately, the world has proven to us yeah. that that saying can be true of people um, based on either accepted understandings of beauty. Still, so there's still aesthetics or, or even things like uh, other markers of identity, right? There's going to be people in the world who distrust you because you're of a certain race of a visible minority or majority yes. that uh, the other person is a part of or is not a part of um, markers of religion and different cultures and things like that that can that can influence these things these sort of subconscious biases that i mentioned you know, at the, uh, the beginning of the podcast so i think that can be two-edged sword are all swords two-edged what's that called double-sided knife yeah that's double knife just to feel a double knife. You're holding two knives. They're facing different directions. There's a double knife. Uh, because in the same way that I can make you like distrust people because they're like, oh, that doesn't that doesn't look like me. That doesn't look like you know a trustworthy or a person or you know the person who told me I'm attractive. I'm not attracted to. So I suddenly doubt that statement to some extent or its validity. Well, the same can be problematic, obviously, the other way as well, right? Where it's like, oh, that person looks like me and they're telling me that I need to do something to fit in more. So I trust that that's accurate or that's a beautiful person. So I trust yes. them to tell me what to do to be more beautiful, which gets you into like the manipulation of advertisements and things like that. Um, or, you know, you miss an opportunity for new knowledge because, you know, the guy who pulls up to you in a van and says, get in the van and I'll show you the secrets of the world. Like, ah, I don't trust you. Well, who knows? Who knows? He could have. Hey, if you don't trust me, who do you trust? 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you don't trust old Messiah Jones in his white panel truck, then who, who do you trust? I feel sorry for you, man. Yeah, who lives atop your ivory tower if it's not <laughs> Messiah Jones in his white panel truck? But That's I guess- the thing that in succession because I'm hoping he becomes like a character. Oh yeah, we're trying to we're, we're one of those podcasts where we're trying to I'm establishing things I can call back to down the road. Yeah. What was it? Messiah Jones? Messiah Jones in his white panel truck. In a white panel truck. I like it. That's good. I like that. Yeah. I can see that I can see that becoming a thing. But then by speaking that I probably um disenfranchise it of its magic. Yeah, people <laughs> Um but I think like yeah, okay. So you're saying yeah, I get what you're saying. You're saying about how you know, there's a manipulation factor, right? And as you say, all those superb examples you brought up, as always, Aaron, like, nail, look out, there's a head coming because Aaron's speaking. Um, well, if you saw how big, people who don't know me, I don't realize that, that how insecure I am about the size of uh, <laughs> my head. The large melon has been referred to as a five head. Um, <laughs> but I've said that I wear parachutes like yarmulkes. Yes. Um, it, so, is, it is exciting when you do um, nail down nails with your own head, though. It's sort of the sideshow attraction. It's he really he just swings like at a forty five degrees from his hip, just bang, just bang, just straight down. Yeah, it's more active than, than anything. It just, just gets heavy for me sometimes, and I, you know, I collapse under the weight of it. But every once in a while, you know, there's some joy to come from it, like putting a nail on the board. But I, I recall we're going off topic here, but I recall that we were at dinner when my fiance who won't be named uh we, we were at dinner in in the middle east where we used to live together and um you you were you know you were going on about your big head i'm like oh how big's my head my head's so big and everyone's like oh your head's not that big and then my partner she said well look i reckon my head's probably the same if not bigger than yours and we measured the heads using my belt if i remember and uh her head was bigger than your head no, I don't recall. Oh, that's at all. true. I'm pretty sure that's true. I'm, I mean, you should trust me automatically because I'm your friend. I should, but I honestly have no recollection of that. Oh. I, I definitely recall <laughs> meeting with your never to be named uh, life partner. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's Messiah Jones. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. So I recall having the, the, the several dinners. I, I, I can definitely imagine that, but I, I, I often imagine it when people say, you know, your head's not that big, and they and they go, maybe I have a hat with me, or they have a hat. I'm like, fine, give me your hat. And I put the hat on, and it sits atop <laughs> my head. Like, I don't even know how to describe it. Like a thimble. Yeah, one of those on, little Turkish hats, like the little red one. I don't know. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah, like a fez, a little fez propped atop my head. Yeah. yeah. Look, to come back to what you were saying before, we were talking about how – you know, people manipulate to gain trust. And I think you're right. It's an exploitation of what are those same basic tools that we're using, you know, I suppose evolutionary psychologists would enjoy all this sort of stuff, but that, you know, if we think about when societies were much simpler, how we would trust or distrust people, I don't think this would be a crazy claim to to say that, you know, we were probably much more inclined to trust those who were in our village or our tribe or our small local area and more distrusting of those outside of it. And I think that is so ingrained in us that we see that play out in other contexts. So that idea that, you know, those who are like us are to be trusted, those who are not like us are to, if not be 
distrusted, at least not trusted so readily. So is that a fair thing to say? I think so. I was testing it in lots of different ways in my mind. And I think, I think in many ways it's, this is going to, again, I'm, I'm tiptoeing on like a, I'm, I do think it's true. What's, what makes it so much more difficult though, is, is how we define us now is not necessarily def- defined by such easily recognizable markers. Yeah. Right. So even like to use the, hegemonic example of the u.s which neither of us are are members of so we can talk about them like they might divide themselves down racial lines at times which is uh problematic and most of like a lot of people would agree with that that's problematic but they people would probably find less of a problem with them dividing themselves down political lines which are not as as easily identifiable like visually so it comes down to these other markers. And I know that I'm probably far more likely to trust somebody who's of my political mindset um, or shares a lot of similar beliefs that I do. Um, but a lot of those beliefs would like take time to hash out. So I still have this problem of like, what do I do with them in the meantime? Do I trust them in the meantime while I'm trying to suss out who they are, how well their worldview aligns with mine? So it's still at this really complicated relationship between like, do I trust them right now? Will I continue to trust them if I find that they're not like me in certain ways? Um, or do I come to trust them when I realize they are more my way, more like me in some specific mm. way when I didn't trust them initially? Yeah, and I suppose then an evolution of that is that that, that same trust that say, like you say, you you are more readily uh, and I, you know, I think if anyone was honest with themselves, that they should all admit to this because I would say there's very few exceptions to the rule. Is that if someone is more aligned to you, whether that's politically, you know, or idealistically, or the, yeah, your outlook on the world is similar, you are more readily ready to trust them. But then that, in and of itself, is open to a manipulation of the other. So I guess what I'm saying is if. Uh, imagine X and Y, well, I'm an X, so I'm more willing to trust X's, but then that lets X's manipulate me to dislike Y's more. Does that make sense? Yes. I was just really grateful that you came up with an example. I was realizing like how difficult, how convoluted it was all becoming without kind of having a, a clear example. So even though it's X's and Y's, yeah, uh, you're right in many ways. And and it's complicated. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good answer. It is complicated. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it is. Yeah. But it's it's because I think if you look through history, there's there's I mean, God, like without getting too broad, because we're we're talking about knowledge and that when we come across new knowledge, you know, that it's always involving an element of trust. And I think that this sort of fits in with it, is that if you look all through history, if we're looking at new knowledge that's being brought to someone if you're getting it from uh, you know in the same example where you're an x then if you're getting that from x you you're going to trust that more and that i guess we can say that that's open for nefarious manipulation so you're it's it's a it's an abuse of trust isn't it and that that that, that is a peril of this it's a peril of trusting is that that trust can be abused yeah, that makes sense because we often learn about how maybe different cultures teach a war and its outcome quite differently based on like nationalistic sort of um, 
ideals. Yes. Right. So yeah, the, the War of eighteen twelve is sort of a classic Canadian American example where it gets taught by Canadians as sort of being you know, a big win. The Americans invaded at certain points across the border of what was then, I guess, just part of the like a, a British state, not an independent country, and, and they were fought back by the Canadians and the British and all that kind of stuff. Whereas I think the Americans teach it at least in some um, places as sort of being like this great kind of raiding party that like went across the border, <laughs> yes. you know, started some fires and, you know, strategically came back to their defendable way, like taught them a lesson, uh, which, you know, is definitely not how I see it. Yes. But again, we're all, we're all open to manipulation. And uh, there's, it reminds me of this book mm-hmm. um, that I don't have access to right now, but it's, uh, I think it's by Margaret McMillan and it's called The Uses and Abuses of History. And it's, it's just sort of, how it's a very short book, but it's just about kind of how, how different political leaders can manipulate people by using history as examples of things that are maybe not totally aligned with what's happening in the present. Oh, it's enough aligned that someone with just a superficial knowledge that history will start to believe that, okay, that is actually a good way to, to look at our, our present. It is sort of like this old war from the past. Um, is this battle between good and evil, even though it's, it's much more complex than that. Yeah. So it's kind of like an argument for being critical of people who are evoking the past but also a claim to like learn more about your history so that you can't be so easily manipulated by these like relatively superficial uh, similarities. Well, it comes true. down to, because we, we can't know everything, right? Like as an individual, you just, you simply can't know everything. You can't, it would be impossible to know every mathematical equation, know every disease that can be inflicted on the human body, to know every single element of building a house like so because of that we have to trust that other people can right and so that's that we need that so this is the sort of paradox isn't it that we do we can't know everything about history so we have to trust historians specifically and the people who have picked said subject to go down the rabbit hole we have to be able to trust that they are presenting a truth to us or you know something approximating the truth so you're right when someone's drawing on something that they don't know a lot about and we're seeing that a lot obviously at the moment with covid with people making huge claims about the efficacy of masks or whether a vaccine can be trusted etc and not maybe being uh, someone who knows a lot about that so there's an abuse of of trust there and that's just when you pull up and you go, oh, it's complicated. <laughs> that is. It's like you throw the parachute out behind it. It is, isn't it? You sort of have to. And I think, well, that's, I, yeah, I'd like that to be probably part of the podcast, isn't it? That you sort of, you're having a go at stuff. <laughs> you're having a go at ideas and trying to get somewhere with it. And and look, I, I think even just us discussing this topic, like I've, I've come out of this, because in what context do you ever really, like we, we would get pretty deep on things when we would talk about things, but, this is, yeah, like this has left me with heaps to think about. Yeah, and we're, I mean, we're keeping it pretty refined to like um, subjects that you can take in school, right? We're talking about like science with a kind of flat versus round. We're talking about history and stuff like that, which I guess is closer to you. But there's like so many other things to, to think about as well in terms of like things that might be deemed sort of somewhat unknowable or very personal, which is sort of like uh, your own personal emotions. Yeah. Uh, so, so can somebody else, can like a, a therapist or a psychiatrist tell you about your emotions when all they really know about you, they can't really see your emotions, mm. but it's based on like other like 
secondary or tertiary claims that you're making about like how you're feeling. Do you know what I mean? So like if you're going to see like, a therapist or a psychiatrist, they're going to ask you a lot of questions and maybe only one of them is how do you feel? Yes. So all the other questions that they're asking you, they're trying to figure out how you're feeling or how you like to yeah. diagnose you. So we're trying to get uh, an approximation of someone else's emotional experience through those questions, aren't they? You know? Yeah. And then, so it's like knowing all of that, knowing that I'm just going to try my best to be honest, or maybe not even fully honest with this person who's asking me these questions. Then they give you their diagnosis or some advice or tips. Like how much can you trust them knowing that your own flawed understanding of yourself was the source of that knowledge to begin with. So you've like given them a bunch of broken shards of a mirror and been like, I think I look like this. And then they, <laughs> oh, wow, that's such a great analogy. That's so good. And then they kind of look at it and they're like, they move a couple shards around and be like, yeah, you look like this. It's like you're playing a game of telephone yeah. with yourself. Oh man, it's like, it's getting real meta now. Oh, it is. It's, it's, it's super meta, but I get what you mean because these, this is coming down to trust of the self now, right? You know, like to what extent can you trust your own, um, well, this is one element of it. I, you brought up a lot of ideas there, but like to what extent can you trust your own version of yourself and how much can you trust someone else's version of you that's being used as a way to heal you? So say if it was not even psychological for a moment and we go to maybe a more binary biological, uh, you know, say you're a crook, you know, you're sick or something or you've broken your leg or whatever, and then you go to the doctor and they obviously can't, they can use external diagnostic tools, you know, they can scan your leg and et cetera, et cetera. But initially at least they're asking you questions and you, and they're trusting your answers and you're trusting your own answers, aren't you? Mm. You know? And so I suppose that, you know, that's, I, I suppose that you could say that this all comes down to how, how much can you know someone else? That's because that knowledge is, uh, that's being presented to you is, 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 yeah. Uh, I'm not quite at what the point I want to make, but I guess it's, yeah, that, that question of to what extent can you even trust yourself? Can you trust that version? Like where, where does the truth lie of the self? <laughs> yeah. That's a good, you know, frightening voice there too. I like that. Um, and I think, yeah, I think you're right in that it comes down to like, if this is, this question is aimed at trusting it seems more obviously aimed at trusting others. Accepting knowledge claims involves an element of trust. We're going to think about how we trust other people. And it is knowledge claims. Mm -hmm. So it is like, like stated knowledge. It's not sort of like, can I trust my eyes that what I'm seeing is red? Yes. Um, it's not looking necessarily just at that. It's looking more at like someone else saying that's red over there. Yes. And if I look at it and it appears red to me too, I trust that person. Uh, you know what I mean? Or if I can't even see it at all, and I just trust you to tell me, oh yeah, there's a, there's a red thing over there. Then, okay, I can't see it, but I trust that you can see it. Yes. Um, but, there does seem, but there does seem to be some element of self in there as well, because we are sort of the ones that, I guess, have some control over trust. And part of it might even just come down to like what we think is knowable versus what we think is not. Oh, knowable. that's great. Yeah, that's right. right? Like if, if I think there is no answer, or there is not, there's not one answer. So I, as I, I teach um, English predominantly, English literature. So if, for example, if my students think there is just one interpretation, mm. then they'll think probably like you, like you might've thought when you had your university class, you mentioned earlier that the one that your teacher gives you is like the interpretation yes. that needs to sort of be parroted, understood and parroted back yes. in the appropriate assessment. But if 
But if you believe there's multiple interpretations or that that's, that that truth of that novel is not knowable, uh, then you're far more open to maybe have ambiguity or certain or like multiple truths can be true to different people at different times. And that even goes all the way into things like, um, like whether or not you believe that there is a truth to be found out there about like the existence of like a spiritual sort of like religious uh, aspect of the world. Like there's certain things that, you know, you can't necessarily logically prove or disprove the existence of God. I'm sure people would, would disagree and be highly provoked. And, you know, they, those people have given up on our podcast in the first three minutes. <laughs> yeah, if we're hanging on to this point, they would just light the comments up. Yeah. Um, it's very hack to say this, but if you're still listening now, well done. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Um, but yeah, so again, I, I think there does come down to a way that we sort of frame ourselves um, that really influences everything else. Like we're sort of the, the, we're the sort of the schema that needs to take all this stuff in and put it into an ordered sense. Holy moly. Yeah. This is when, this is when, if we were in the same, when, when uh, John and I used to work together, we would have these conversations in one of our classrooms and one of us would invariably grab a whiteboard marker yes. and start drawing. <laughs> and we're John is a, is a, is a quite accomplished artist, oh, but yeah. I would, I would still try. And none of these things are really art based anyway. So it wouldn't really matter. It would just sort of be squiggles and shapes that would help like sort of how some cultures and people use their hands. They flail kind of wildly for, to accentuate things. I would just sort of doodle on the board and try to cut <laughs> John's attention, just circle, circle, circle. And then a dot in the middle. No, I'm not drawing a boob. That's the truth right there. <laughs> And, uh, I'm not drawing I'm, a boob. That's the truth right there. That's the tagline yeah. for the podcast. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. Uh, I guess I'm just missing that ability right now. Yeah. I think, look, it's, yeah. And I think what we'll find as we, as we do these, um, these episodes is that because we're talking about knowledge and, and the truth, I suppose, we, we, we will be drawn inevitably to what you've just been talking about. You know, I like that idea of, you know, the individuals bringing that schema. I don't even know if I'm using that word right. You know, you're bringing that schema to all the truths, plural, out there, et cetera. And, yeah, we'll be we'll be inevitably drawn back to that, I think, each time. And it's going to be interesting to be uh, how the, the theme or the topic uh, informs that each time because trust is very personal, isn't it, you know, and we've, we've sort of examined how that, that has played out or can play out rather with knowledge. So, yeah, I'm really excited to see, to see how each of our topics deals with these grand questions. Um, you know, we got, we did get to whether God exists or not right at the end. So. Yeah. It's just good. We just try to get there every time. <laughs> yeah, that's the, yeah. It's like a sort of uh, that's the goal. And we look out and see the maze in front of us and, and find our path to that. <laughs> um, yeah, I like that. Well, look, we're at what a time we're we've, we're at over an hour, which I think is a pretty good hit out. My brain's starting to fry. Obviously, this can all be edited and changed. What's, what's your feeling, Aaron? I'm also feeling pretty done. Yeah, I think yeah, we've like given I, it a good shot. Talk again for three months, and you know, like we've, we've had a good. <laughs> I found this uh, very therapeutic, though. It's been great. Oh, that's good. Yeah. yeah, I find I always find these conversations really helpful and and, and enjoyable. Yeah, and they make they, they leave me feeling both. Um, 
humbled and yet even more arrogant because I've allowed <laughs> myself to be humbled. <laughs> that terrible? No, I'm like, I think it. I'm like, wow, I really, I come to realize what I don't know. And that's makes me so much more wise than other people. Yeah, that's, that's the, that's so terrible. It's a, it's a good alignment of what should be paradoxical things in your mind. I think I, think, I really like that. Yeah. You, you're not going to experience any cognitive dissonance, um, by being both humble and arrogant at the same time. You found in a way to to fuse them in a synergy of ultimately very arrogant belief. <laughs> yeah, it's awesome. My, my own superiority <laughs> is based in part by my inferiority. Yes, exactly. <laughs> it's really, wow. Like I've, I think I've come to hate myself in this 70 plus minutes we've been talking. Well, that's what that's we're great. always trying to achieve here on TBD. Yeah.